Hebrews 12, verse 18. And we're going to be reading to verse 24. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, righteous and holy God, God of glory and majesty, of beauty, purity and radiance, we bow before you, the Holy One, thrice holy God, worshipped by angels and seraphim and cherubim, worshipped by all the heavenly beings, worshipped by all creation, worshipped by your people. We bow our knees before you. We bow our hearts before you, Lord, and ask that you would bend our wills, that it would align with your will as revealed to us in your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. The theme for this morning's message is an encouragement to join the church. And by that I don't necessarily mean you have to join this church, but wherever you're listening to this message, you should join a biblical church, become part of a biblical church. And my prayer really is that Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 24 would be used by the Holy Spirit to encourage you to become part of the church of Jesus Christ in the world. And also that he would use this sermon to show you what you are missing out on if you do not become part of the church. And I'm going to explain this under the shadow of two mountains. So let us read Hebrews 12. The first mountain then is Mount Sinai, verse 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages might be spoken to them. For they couldn't endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Let me tell you about John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in the book, he writes of a certain man called Christian. And Christian is about to flee from the city of destruction on his way to the heavenly city. He was shown the way by a man called Evangelist, who told him, you flee to the light and go to the little gate, to the wicked gate. And at that gate, not wicked, wicked at the gate, it will be told you what to do. And so Christian flees, and eventually he, he meets a man, before he even gets to the gate, he meets a man called Mr. Worldly Wise. And Mr. Worldly Wise says, where are you going, and what's that big burden on your back? And Christian says, you know, I want to get rid of this burden, which is conviction of sin. I want to get rid of this. And he said, well, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to the wicked gate. He said, who told you to do that? He said, evangelist. He said, oh, evangelist, you can't trust that guy. Let me tell you what to do. There's a much easier way to get, a, get rid of that, that burden you're bearing. Uh, go to a town called Morality. It's not far from here. To a man called Mr. Legality. Legalism. To Mr. Legality. And, um, and Christian didn't know where it was, and so... Mr. Worldly Wise directed him and said, it's just beyond this hill, this mountain you see here. And of course, that was Mount Sinai. And 
So Christian goes to get rid of this burden, and as he gets to the mountain, he sees how terrifying it is, and this is what he sees. Verse 18 and 19. A blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a storm, the sound of a trumpet, a voice so loud it makes you beg, please stop talking. And so he's afraid and terrified and starts weeping, and then evangelist shows up again. He says, what are you doing here? And he said, I was directed to come here. Who told you? And he said, Mr. Worldly Wise. And the evangelist says, you can't trust him. And he rebukes Christian. And then he comforts Christian. And then he directs him and brings him back on the right path. That's exactly what happened to these Christians, these Hebrew Christians. So they turned their back on the New Testament gospel. And they wanted to return to the Old Testament law. In other words, they, they wanted to exchange Jesus for Moses. They wanted to return to Moses. And to show how stupid and idiotic their decision is, the author writes them this letter. And he reminds them of Mount Sinai. He reminds them of the fire and the darkness and the gloom and the storm, this tempest and the loud trumpet and the voice, so terrifying that they begged, please, will you stop talking, Lord? And we find all of this in Exodus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and 5. And they were especially afraid, verse 20 tells us, when God gave the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it gets killed. You stone it, or in Exodus it says, you either stone it or shoot it with an arrow. And so they, they realized, God is holy. God is holy. These Israelites in the time of Moses had to realize He's holy and Unclean and fallen creation cannot come before a holy God. Even Moses was terrified. He trembled with fear, verse 21. And that we find in Deuteronomy 9, verse 19, where he's terrified and afraid. So the point the author is trying to convey, he's trying to show us under the old covenant, there was this distance between God and the sinner. But now under the new covenant, we have free access. We can come to God through Jesus Christ. We saw that in chapter 10, verse 19 to 22. We can come to the Lord. Even in our text, uh, we're still going to get there, verse 22 to 24. We were far off, Ephesians says, but God has brought us near. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So to, to exchange Jesus and to say, I want to turn Jesus in, I want to exchange Jesus and return to a stone temple or to the Old Testament priests or animal sacrifice, that's really to return to Mount Sinai. And that is spiritual suicide. So I want to encourage you to stay true and remain true to any church that preaches the gospel of by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. If you turn away, if you are caught by legalistic groups, sects, cults, and they tell you you need to follow certain rules before God will accept you, well, what's going to happen to you? You'll be exactly like these Israelites. You'll be terrified. You'll be terrified because you are never certain, have I done enough to earn God's favor? Or on the other hand, you'll become proud and you'll become overconfident because you think, I've kept the law better than other people have. And in that case, I think it'll be very good for you to realize God demands 
perfect obedience to the law. Otherwise, you go to hell. Jesus says, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3 verse 10, If you do not everything that is written in the law, all who rely on the works of the law under a curse, it's written, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you break one law, you've broken the law. You are under God's judgment. So I hope you can see, I hope you can see very clearly that faith in the biblical gospel is necessary to save you from hell. And also, faith in the biblical gospel is necessary to keep you from becoming insane because you will lose your mind. If you think you can earn your salvation by good works, you'll be in a frenzy. You'll be terrified like Israel was. And just like the, the, the Hebrew writer, the writer to the Hebrews, just like he encourages his readers to turn away from legalistic groups and to stay and stick to the New Testament gospel, I want to encourage you to do the same. Don't even think you can earn God's favor because you listen to Bible preaching or biblical sermons, Bible-centered sermons, or because you have a, a quiet time, a regular quiet time, or you come to church often, or you give money to the church, you tithe, or you fast. God will not look at you with more favor simply because you're a moral person, or even if you have a sound theology. Just like good works cannot save you, in the same way God will not look upon you with favor because you know the Bible and you don't believe in false teaching. According to Scripture, God saves us by faith alone, not by Calvinism alone or by Arminianism alone. God looks at us through Jesus Christ and not through John Wesley and not through John Calvin. Now, I'm not trying to, to tear down biblical teaching. I'm not trying to tear down pure teaching. The Bible teaches us, preach the word, be in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So we must be pure in our teaching. And we must preach the Bible, the word of God. But what I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to encourage you to look to Jesus and not to Moses or anyone else. To look to the cross rather than to Mount Sinai. And it's in that last way that that I want to say, I don't care how pure and how biblical the teaching in any church is. If Jesus Christ is not central to the preaching and the ministry of that church, then the preaching is not pure enough. The Apostle Paul said, I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said, in the first place, and then he goes on preaching the gospel. I've decided to boast in nothing else. I will boast in nothing else except in Jesus, in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which I was crucified to the world and the world to me. And besides, how can anyone be saved? How can anyone conquer their sin? How can anyone grow spiritually if Jesus and his death on the cross is not central? 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of every individual and every congregation that call themselves Christians. Do you believe that? Does this congregation believe that? Does the congregation, to you listening to the recording, does the congregation close to you in the area you live, do they believe that? Well, if they do, why not join them? Why not join them? Why not work with such a congregation to build on the foundation of the gospel rather than trying to build on your own? Secondly, second mountain is Mount Sinai. No, no, Mount, Mount Zion. The first one was Mount Sinai, second one Mount Zion. Verse 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So you remember one evening, Jacob, as he was running away from his brother Esau and fleeing to his uncle, he stopped for the night in the desert and he did not have a pillow, so he took a stone and put it beneath his head. And as he slept, he dreamed and in his dream, he saw a ladder reaching from earth to heaven and angels going up and down on it. And at the top of the ladder, he saw God standing. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament in John 1. And in the very last verse, Jesus says that he's that ladder. He's the ladder and the angels go up and down on him. He's the one who connects heaven and earth. That's why Jesus dies on a cross between heaven and earth, hanging between heaven and earth, because he brings heaven and earth together. He reconciles heaven and earth, like Ephesians 1.10, Colossians 1 verse 20 teaches. He brings sinners to God. And, and he does not only do so in the future. He will not only do so in the future. Even now, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you have some foretaste. You have a foretaste of this. You share in heaven. Verse 22. Not you will come to Mount Zion, the heavenly city. You have come. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says that we are already seated with him or in him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3 verse 3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden with Christ on high. Now where does this happen where, we, where heaven and earth unites? It happens in the church. Jesus is the head. We are the body. And so in Christ, the church becomes a place and becomes the place where heaven and earth meet. It becomes the place where, where we, even though we're still on earth, where we have fellowship with heaven. As we see verse 22, I already read that 
Um, verse 23, we come to innumerable angels in festival gathering. 24, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. To God, judge of all spirits of the righteous made perfect. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood. That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel. So practically that means that the church is the only place on earth where you can truly have an experience of heaven. It's the only place on earth where, where you come to the heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the living God, verse 22, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Galatians 4, verse 26 says that we are citizens of the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above is our mother. Um, Revelation 14, verse 1 speaks of Mount Zion and refers to heaven there. So, so be, to, to be part of the church... It also means, verse 22, that we come to innumerable angels in heaven. And the author, he speaks of it as a festal gathering. It's a festal gathering. So in the context of Mount Sinai, you see these terrifying beings and they're angels, fiery beings in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. But in the context of Mount Zion in the New Testament, oh, it's a festal gathering. It's a feast. It's joy. And the angels really, the angels look with great interest to what is happening in the church. And they add their voices to ours in worship, in praise. That's the idea here. When one sinner is converted, they rejoice. Luke 15.10, God rejoices, the one among the angels, and certainly the angels too. The angels, when we gather, even in the way we conduct ourselves, as men and women of the church fulfilling our roles, the angels are watching. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 10. The angels, they are watching with great interest to see what is happening in the church. God displays His wisdom to these heavenly beings through the church. Ephesians 3 verse 10. Even when we choose spiritual leaders in the church, elders, the angels are watching. 1 Timothy 5 21. When we preach the gospel, the angels look with great desire to understand this wonderful message. 1 Peter 1 verse 12. So yes, we don't see them. Even now, while we're here, we don't see them. But they are here. They are invisible spirits, Hebrews 1 verse 14. But they are here. They are here, verse 22. We have come to innumerable angels. And you know, the fact that the angels are watching doesn't mean we should worship the angels. No, what it means is we should worship the Lord together with the angels, as verse 22 tells us. Don't worship angels, Colossians 2.18, Revelation 19 verse 10, and 22 verse 8 and 9. And then also, as a church, we are one, it says, with the assembly of the firstborn, verse 23. Now, the word assembly... Um, church is another translation. It's, it's a Greek word, ecclesia, and it means the called out ones. God has called us out of the world to belong to Him. And so, so what the author is doing is he, he refers to our being one with the assembly of the firstborn, and he calls them firstborn for a reason, uh, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Their names are written in heaven, as Jesus said in Luke 10. In the book of life, Philippians 4 verse 3, and it's written there before the foundation of the earth, the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. 
So in other words, the firstborn, if their names are enrolled in heaven, I think the implication is they are not in heaven yet. They're still on earth, but their names are written there. So the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, this assembly, it refers to all believers worldwide. And they and they alone are part of the church on earth. And they are one with those in heaven. Their names are written there. And they alone will be those who enter heaven. As Revelation 21-27 tells us, only if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life can you enter the new Jerusalem. Otherwise you'll be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 15. And we've already seen that he calls them the firstborn, verse 23. And I think the reason is, uh, Jesus is the firstborn. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 6, he's the heir of all things. He's the firstborn born among many brothers. Um, Romans 8.29 And so us through him, we through Christ are also called now the firstborn, the heirs, co-heirs with Christ. But that's not the, the point I want to focus on. I want to lay emphasis on this that the church on earth is much larger than the Hebrew congregation, than Kempton Park Baptist Church, than the Afrikaans Baptist Churches, than the church in South Africa. We are part of the universal church. All true believers worldwide. And that means we are not alone when we gather to worship God. We are, even today, we are worshipping God together with hundreds of millions of Christians on this planet. From the rising of the sun to, the, to its setting, the name of the Lord will be praised. <coughs> and I think that should help you and I when we start thinking, but our church is so small. And there are so few true Christians where I work and where I live. Listen, the church is bigger than you think. And the church will keep on expanding until Jesus comes. It'll be a mountain that fills the earth. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The church is like a stone that grows and becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. It's like a mustard seed, very tiny, but then it grows and become the largest, becomes the largest plant in the garden. And then verse 23 continues and says, We also come to God the Father when we become part of the church. And He's called the judge of all. He's the judge of every man and every woman. Every boy, every girl, every angel, and every demon. He's the judge of all. And he will judge us through his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 2 verse 16 and John 5 22. And now for us as Christians, Jesus will not condemn us because he already, he already bore the punishment for our sins on the cross. And so there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we believe in the Son, we will not come into judgment. We've already passed from death to life. But <coughs> there will be condemnation for those who reject Christ. For those who continue in their sins. Because He knows 
the secrets of our hearts, and he will judge righteously. He is the judge of all. He is God Almighty. He sees everything. He knows everything. And he is not a judge who will only threaten. He is a judge who is almighty and he is very able to execute. He is very able to punish those who are condemned. To destroy soul and body in hell, Jesus said. I mean, he is the God of verse 18 to 21, is he not? The God of thunder and lightning, of fire and smoke and cloud and darkness and storm. Are you a believer? Well, then Jesus will not condemn you, but he will reward you according to your service. Even as we see in chapter 13, verse 17, speaking of spiritual leaders who will give an account to God. In 1 Corinthians 3, that teaches us we will be rewarded. So do your best. Do your best as someone who understands and someone who knows that your life and your service and your worship happens before the eyes of this God. Right in His presence. In the presence of God, Timothy, and the presence of Jesus Christ and the elected angels, I charge you. In the presence of God, God who will judge the living and the dead, Jesus Christ, by his appearing in his kingdom, I tell you, Timothy, preach the word. You are doing it in the presence of God. And so become involved in the church if you are not. And start, retake your service. Pick up your service again if you've become tired and weary. And ask the Lord's grace and strength and continue serving until Jesus comes, or until you die and go to heaven. To become part of the church, next in verse 23, also means that you come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So you become one with believers who are already in heaven. Their spirits are in heaven. We know their bodies are in the grave, but their spirits have become perfect, verse 23 tells us. Like we read in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, the body returns to dust and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Or like in Luke 16 or Luke 23, we read of people dying and going to heaven, going to paradise. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, that, this doesn't mean that we need to talk to the dead. But what it does mean is we are part of one massive family. One big family that stretches from earth to heaven. And that also goes for our worship services. So it's not only us who are worshipping the Lord today. It's not only believers worldwide. We are worshipping God this day with believers through all, well, across all borders and through all, through all of time, through all of history, throughout all of history. Just think of that. Abel and Moses and Ruth and David and Paul and Peter and Augustine and Luther and believers you know who have died in the last couple of months with millions of other believers. At this very moment, we are busy worshipping God. <laughs> Together. I don't think we, we really understand and realize what a great privilege it is to be part of the church. Do we really understand what is going on when we gather to worship the Lord? This life, 
This fellowship, this worship, all of it is possible because of verse 24. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So the old covenant, Moses was the mediator of that covenant, and he spoke to God for the people, and he spoke to the people for God. Uh, Exodus 19 and 20. And now in the new covenant, Jesus is the mediator of this covenant. And he's better than Moses. Because Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is God with us. He is my Lord and my God, who, whom Thomas worships. He is the word was with God and the word was God. He is Jesus born of a woman. He is God and man. And so he can represent us with the Father and he can or to the Father and he can represent the Father with us or to us. He reveals the Father to us. He's the mediator between God and men. So that means you need nothing, absolutely nothing, more than Jesus Christ in order to become a Christian and to come to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then finally, verse 24 says that we come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, what did Abel's blood speak? Abel's blood, according to God in Genesis 4, cried from the ground. It cried out for vengeance. It cried out that God would see what Cain had done and that God would punish Cain, that God would avenge himself on Cain. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Jesus' blood calls out, not for vengeance, but for mercy and forgiveness. Jesus on the cross prays, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus' blood falls from the cross, pours on, onto the ground, and we are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 22, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. The blood of Jesus, or the death of Jesus, that's another way of saying his death, that the blood of Jesus is central to whom and what we are as a church. We understand as Christians, the church would not have existed if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus. And that is why we remember the blood of Jesus every time we take the Lord's table. We remember the blood of Jesus in our preaching because we preach Christ and Him crucified. We remember the blood of Jesus when we sing, both on earth and in heaven, because we sing of the Lamb who was slain and purchased us with His blood for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. May we never forget what Jesus has done for us. That would be as good as forgetting that you exist. Remember, remember, says Doug Van Meter, I'm not giving a direct quote. Remember that you have come to Mount Sinai where God convicts you of sin. That you have come to Mount Calvary where God has saved you through the death of His Son. 
where you come to Mount Zion, the foot of Mount Zion, I could say, where we worship God here and now, and where Mount Zion one day, the new Jerusalem, will descend from heaven to earth, and we will be with the Lord forever. I hope you can see what a great privilege it is to be part of the church, and that if you are not yet part of the church, you would no longer remain standing on the outside, but repent and believe the gospel and become part of the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, what a glorious privilege to be part of the church of your beloved Son. I pray that you would use this word and that you would move hearts to join the church of Jesus Christ and to follow the Lamb, our shepherd who leads us to springs of living water. I pray this in his name. Amen.